thank you so much for taking our time for this session. Um, so in this session, uh, what we're trying to do is that we're trying to gather the questions of the youth yeah. in the first place. And we're also trying to correct the course of the stream of thought of our youth to make them think and make them ask the bigger questions. Uh, in the last session, we discussed two main topics regarding evolution and atheism. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned the Pauline philosophy uh, in uh, the discussion of atheism. Uh, so the first question is that if you, if you study Paul and you know his life history, he was not even a companion of Jesus, yet influenced so many people that Christianity today is the biggest religion on the face of the earth. So what were the key aspects of, you know, uh, influence that he used, the key elements of psychological warfare that he put to Yeah, that's the word. Psychological warfare is the word. He, he did two things. First, he had, okay, what was going on at the time of Paul? By the way, this is a lesson for the Muslims as well. All Muslims should know and learn from Paul or 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 the, the Gentile at the time of Paul. Jews were what? Five, six percent of the whole world, especially the Greco Roman, you know, demographic. No more than five percent. And I'm giving you a high number here. So no Jew was ever gonna believe in his letters, especially uh, let me quote you from the Bible, Galatians. Now, what is he saying in Galatians chapter 1, chapter uh, 2? He's saying chapter 5. Uh, oh my God, there's so much to play with. Paul has been very busy. First Corinthians, First Timothy. All of these books, Paul is writing clear letters. He, he's, he's doing a very, it's a two-step process he did. Number one, he first and foremost had to gain some authority. And he was never going to get authority because I'm assuming I did not do, I, I did not get enough data on what Paul was going through before his journey uh, to Jerusalem because there's not much data. And I tried to find it, but there's not much data. So what did he do? He came up with this notion that on my way to Jerusalem, I had a vision. As Galatians, if you can, if you can put Galatians, uh, yeah, here you go. And for this purpose, that's that's First Timothy, right? I uh, go through Galatians, and you'll find out that he's self-appointed uh, chief rabbi of the 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 Jew, uh, well, not the Jews, but the faith. Now he's the one who actually introduces that. Jews are the descendants of, of the covenant of Hagar, which should be Muslims are, by the way. And he's representing the covenant of Sarah. Now, see his strategy. It's very clear. Now, how did he get uh, the authority? He didn't get any authority. He just proclaimed it. He said, I was taught by the one in my own visions, and I was not taught by any man. That's Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2. I was not taught by any man. That means I'm a superior person. You know, ironically, a, a, a guy just asked me this question that God is speaking to me. You know what I'm saying? So 
He literally said, God is speaking to me. So all of a sudden, who is going to object to this claim? Obviously, you have to have some... People who believe in God is going to object to this claim. Yeah. So those are 5% of the people. The Greco-Roman demographic is not, yeah. you know, a monotheistic. They're at best henotheistic. They believe in one God, which is Zeus. But, you know, and there are so many gods. So Jews had to go against this very notion. So all of a sudden, he turned to, to the non-Jews. And he said, I am to the Jews a Jew and for to the non-Jews a, a non-Jew. And all of a sudden, he's the one who's actually telling that uh, Peter, since Peter was there to follow the covenant of Moses, I'm here to make sure whoever does not follow the covenant of Moses, I'm going to talk to those people and make them follow me. Okay. The Gentile. So it's a big lottery ticket. He's selling. You know what? There's one God. They already know so many gods. So all of a sudden, there's less, less baggage. One. Number two. He's got a divine authority of a covenant, a promise to the promised land, and a representation of the biggest possible stature. It's a fantastic claim with absolutely no proof. A fantastic claim requires a fantastic proof. So, okay, you speak to God. Okay, well, there has to be something more than just your word to it. But no, there's just 17, uh, 14 letters about this. I'm, I'm deducting the Hebrews and the Romans. But if you look at Galatians chapter 1, Galatians 2, 1 Timothy, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, you find out that he's diverted from the Jews. He knows that, you know what, Jews are not going to object to it because Jews don't care about the Gentile. Whenever the Gentiles believe Jews has nothing to do with it, who's going to ask him why is he teaching something wrong? No one. They don't know anything anyway. And I was like, the Gentiles are absolutely a blank slate with a lot of corruption coming in from the Greco-Roman theology, nothing more. He's using those concepts because who gets to be spoken by God? Of course, you know, Zeus speaks to a lot of the gods. You know, Zeus speaks to Hercules. All of a sudden, when Jesus is going to speak to uh, Paul, it's not a fantastic claim for the Gentile of that psychology. So, we know what happened rest uh, later, all of a sudden, you never see Pauline philosophy propagating inside Israel unless, of course, you, you go into uh, John Darby's, you know, uh, the later movement. Right now, Pauline philosophy never entered Jerusalem. They, they were, he was kicked out by James. Pauline philosophy was well embraced by the rest of the world, especially, let's just say, Constantine. And then with Constantine came the rest of the planet. Now, it is the biggest philosophy by stretch in the planet. Most, well, let's just say, I wouldn't be so wrong that all of the Christians are influenced by Paul, courtesy of, look at this, and to the Jews, I become a Jew, and I might win Jews, which he didn't, which he didn't. And to those who are under the law, as I'm going to act as I am also under the law, of course, and by the end of it, to all men that I may be means of to save as much as I can. So this is a statement of hypocrisy. Anyone, any human being who writes this paragraph in any one of his speeches will be kicked out of the stage. That's probably because he was trying to sell the concert of self. Well, no, he only for everybody. Not just sell, but to channel it. Because to sell something, I had to develop some credibility. So he channeled it through 
the fact that he's getting divine, uh, you know, revelations from Jesus. And he got five visions, to be exact. And he wrote, you know, the Aximaro letters. And the uh, rest is just uh, history. Now, more than three billion people actually believe in every word based on a certain biasness. You need to, no, assuming George Washington or Nelson Mandela wrote this. What? <laughs> I mean, who in his name might write this? Of course, he's talking to somebody, a population of superstitious people. Because he's already established that this guy is getting revelations from Jesus directly. So he had to put a divinity, a mark of divinity on Jesus, which at that time people were in great, in Christians, in great ratio, who didn't believe that Jesus is divine. All of a sudden Jesus becomes divine because that divine Jesus serves a way bigger purpose for Paul. Because he's got to do whatever he's got to do. And then, you know, you can see that, um, you know, most of the Jews, they don't really object to Luke. I don't think anybody objects to Luke. But everybody objects to Paul. And if you can see Matthew, John, Mark, they're just copying Luke, except of the aberrations later on, which is, of course, influenced by Paul. So it's all Paul. I don't see anything else with Christianity other than what Paul did for Christianity, good or bad. Now, what, is, what do we have to learn from this? Muslims are going through the exact same psychological phenomena. We have a Paul in every sect. Literally, word to word, this guy is going to replicate the strategy, be it a Shiite or a Sunniite or whoever. He's going to use the same pedestal and he's going to, you know, overthrow the whatever the paradigm is, is working into, and then he's going to achieve a political objective of getting more numbers in. Literally, more numbers. Look at him. He just wants more numbers. That's that's how politics is done. That's what we're actually suffering from. So, for a Muslim, how can we detect our Paul? Well, you put him on the under the litmus paper, under the microscope, that I need a fantastic proof for your fantastic claim. And even if you cannot give me a fantastic proof, at least give me something to play with. You know what I'm saying? That you said that there's something for Muslims to learn from Paul. It's actually what not to do that Paul did. Uh, Everybody in the Gentiles... And no, 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 no. The, well, most, Muslim, most Muslims are not going to become Paul. They are already suffering from some Paul. Yeah, yeah. So yes, they thanks. should not believe what the Gentiles actually did when they started accepting whatever Paul was preaching. Yeah, well, that's the lesson for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what? So there is a discussion that what did Paul actually had to gain from all of this? Because it was why? Because Jesus was gaining traction amongst, you know, the particular sect or, you know, the fisher. No, ironically, uh, you have to read between the, the dialogue between St. James and St. Paul. Once you read whatever St. Paul, because James massacred Paul in the four days of whatever they, they talked about. And he rejected everything what, what Paul was proposing. Or Paul, all he had is one superstitious claim that I got visions. And it doesn't matter whether he got visions or not. At that time, vision would have been like an okay card to sell. But if you got vision, you just went 180 degrees against what Jesus had to preach. Because that's what James' premise was. That if you are getting visions from Jesus, you could be getting whatever we were getting when he was physically with us. 
So physically, he was telling us something else, exact, the opposite of whatever the vision. In the, he's he's the same guy coming to you and telling totally, telling totally the opposite thing in your visions. So who am I supposed to believe? The the guy who lived with me all his life said X is not equals to Y, or the guy who you just saw in visions which you never actually seen, and he's saying no X is equals to Y. So James actually out and out rejected this, and this is why you can see what Paul would have wanted. He was let's just do some psychology checkups here. Paul was a Roman citizen. Roman citizen is a big thing at that time. When he's going to do something for whatever movement he has to actually, you know, even if it is good intent, and I'm giving all the benefits of the doubt, which I shouldn't, but he had to keep some sort of a status quo running so that he can keep that that momentum or that, you know, that, that complex that most people would have if he's coming down from a throne. And people, Jews didn't touch him because he was a Roman citizen. Otherwise, he would have been assassinated way, or, or butchered, literally, if not put on a cross. So he was, you know, getting that one plus from everybody. So if he's going to start a movement, he's not going to come under the shadow of James or anybody else. So he's going to have to have that sort of attraction. So yeah. So despite going 180 degrees opposite, in initial stages of his preaching, he was actually uh, supported by, you know, you mentioned Gospel of Barnabas and there was mentioning of, uh, you know, how it agrees with the concept that Muslims no, well, well, the well, crucifixion of Jesus. He couldn't have come up with a hybrid version because he's talking to the people who are uncircumcised and he's going against circumcision. It's not ironic that most women go into Jewish uh, faith because that's a really tough ask. You know what I'm saying? You should, you should know how the psychology works. So he's the one who's actually saying, you know what, do not listen to the people who castrate themselves, which is like, you, you cannot, thou shalt not castrate. That's how simple he's making it. So people are naturally going to listen to it more because that's an easier thing to do. And that's just not one thing. Yes, uh, circumcision is one of the many things. Uh, so many things that he's introduced by breaking the literal law that Peter was for the people who follow the law and I were the people who don't. And then now we know that Christians practically do not have any of those teachings of the Torah. They don't keep the Shabbats. Nor are they actually, you know, practicing any word of the Old Testament except trying to smuggle Jesus into, you know, certain verses of Isaiah and and, and, and whatnot. Also mentioned that it's, it's basically a common belief amongst the Muslims that the concept of crucifixion uh, amongst the Christians is very different from what we Muslims believe. But you mentioned that it is mentioned in the Bible one in one of the lectures that yeah. it's mentioned in Bible that the oh, creation of Jesus didn't actually happen. Can you elaborate a little Matthew, yeah, book of Matthew is actually, you know. Why do you think the Ethiopians called Pontius Pilate a saint? Pontius Pilate was the guy who gave the order of the execution, the crucifixion, right? He gave the kill order. And all of a sudden he becomes the the saint. So when we read through Matthew, you'll find out that at the time of the crucifixion, people were gathered up in the altar, and that's a normal day's routine for anybody because that's uh, it's a kill day, and that's not just one day. It's, you know, it's, it's, all of these execution orders and capital punishment or whatnot goes to a, you know, the altar. So he's sitting in that, he's coming into the terrace and all of a sudden, but that, that morning was special because he writes that his wife has seen a dream. 
and the whole dream is narrated. And because of the wife's dream, he has to let go of somebody because that's the dream. And that's a very important figure. Now, imagine, this is a true dream, by the way. I believe that because he did let go of Jesus. And he comes out on the terrace and he says, since my wife has seen a dream and it's an anniversary, I need to give you guys a gift. And I'm not giving any sort of a, I'm not paraphrasing here. He's literally putting it all on the wife's dream and he's literally giving a gift to the people. And there are two people, uh, one from Nazareth, okay, who people love, who people absolutely adore. And then, you know, Jesus Barabbas, Jesus from Nazareth, Jesus, sorry, Jesus Barabbas is the guy from Nazareth. Or I just keep mixing them. Just go through that, you'll find out. So what happened was, he asked the people of all, both of these Jesuses, who should I forgive? People naturally jump onto the, the fact that, so since this word Barabbas means the son of God in Hebrew, Barabbas, they did not translate this even though they translate everything. This word is as is written without changing, the, without telling us the real meaning because people just say, you know, Jesus is the son of God, Jesus Barabbas. Okay? So if he says, I'm going to let go of what you choose, he's not choosing because of the name. The Bible just says, Matthew just says that, you know, they let go of Jesus Barabbas and they put Jesus on the, on the cross. Well, which Jesus? We don't know. Now, this is not our time of YouTube or Instagram or whatever. What, what, what happens? Let's just say two people were killed in Sialkot, right? We don't know what happened. We just got to know, and whatever we did get to know, let's just say, we, well, we have that on video somewhere, because how did we, they get killed? Nobody was recording that. They got killed and whatever, and this last incident in Salcote. We don't know what this guy actually was doing. We just hear it from people. Now we have the cameras, and we have all the recordings, and we still can't tell what happened. In the older days, not older than Jesus, older when there was no camera or, or, or microphone or, or, or TV, People used to believe wherever the news used to come from and ask people about whatever happened. No, he did not even say that I'm not going to kill Jesus. He said, all of these two, which one would you want me to forgive? And he kills Jesus. Not Isa of but one of those two people named Isa. So that indicates towards a confusion only. Yeah. It doesn't prove that Jesus... Jesus, this is book of Matthews. I'm not quoting myself here. So when I read this, I'm like, okay, hold on. When Allah says, made to believe, it was made for them to believe that Jesus, Isa ibn Maryam is crucified. How is it made for them to believe? What? Allah said, and everybody started believing? No. They had seen a crucifixion, 200 people, maybe 300 at tops, 500. And... Then the news was spread all over the place. Since the news was spread all over the place, everybody starts saying that Jesus is crucified. Everything. So it was made for everybody else to believe that Jesus is crucified, even though Jesus was set free in Matthews, inside Matthews, by Pontius Pilate. And when the Ethiopians are talking about this, that Saint Pilate, you know, let go of the real Jesus. 
I just am asking the question, why are you calling this guy sin if he killed Jesus? What criteria is he, you know, qualified as sin? And you know what the local Christians are going to tell you? Oh, you know what? Because of his repentance and remorse. He repented and remorse. He killed your God for God's sakes. Is there a remorse for that? Or, or can you repent from that? Or even if you can, let's just say. Because Jesus did die for everybody's sin. He never became a Christian. How can he possibly, you know, be a saint? So Ethiopians have a very strong angle for that. They're like very little about this. Like you're the guy who let go of Jesus. They don't believe that Jesus was crucified by St. Pilate. Pontius Pilate is a very respectable figure in some parts of Christianity. Okay. So that's the book of Matthews right there. So you think that Ethiopians don't believe that Jesus was actually crucified? No, they don't believe that Pontius Pilate did that. Now, that's the extent of what Ethiopian, because, of course, it's only the Unitarians and Christadelphians. They never believe. Unitarians and Christadelphians believe that Jesus died a natural death. They don't believe he was divine. They, they don't believe he was God. He, they're regular Christians. They just believe he's the last prophet who lived through this crucifixion. And do they take that reference from Bible as well? Yeah, yeah they believe in the Bible. They just don't. Is it mentioned in the Bible? Jesus was the last prophet. Because obviously they... No, well, the Bible is not written by Jesus or from Jesus. It is written by the disciples. Uh, well, not by the disciples. Paul is not a disciple. Nor does anywhere in the Bible say that John is writing this Bible. He doesn't say, you know, yours truly, John. It's... He is using John as a third person. So he did tell John, looks like if you have John, can you pull John up there? How would you pull the Paul's letter? You know, Jesus came to John. Well, John is not going to write Jesus came to John. You know what I'm saying? So, but yeah, I can understand if it may be a dialect of that at that time. But it seems so that John did not write John. And um, uh, it never says anywhere in the Bible that any of the disciples wrote these Gospels. So the Gospel or the basically book that was written by St. Paul actually gained the most traction and all the other texts. He's gotten 14 books out of 37. He's half the, more than half the Bible is St. Paul's own writing who had never met Jesus. I'm just trying to diagnose the problem here then. Uh -huh. The mainstream of Christianity actually do believe that Jesus was, was crucified. He was the Son of God. So, and, and he was resurrected miraculous, and, miraculously. Uh, yeah. So is it just because of Paul's preaching that this idea was actually mainstream amongst the Christianity? Or was it because, no. you know, if it's mentioned good in the question. text... Yeah. Good question. No, no. Well, whoever... Well, uh, you, you have to go through a little bit of history. We do not know. And any question can debate me. Christian can debate me with this. We do not actually know who started this. Because Council of Nicaea happened in 200s. Papias, who's the who's the big name? Papias, you got to read about what Papias wrote. Uh, I'm not going to go further down, but as early as Papias, and we can see that there were priests in Nicaea who actually started to claim that Jesus is divine, but they were trying to suck up to Constantine because there were uh, so many priests who didn't believe Jesus was divine at that time. So what I'm saying is, it's not that. It's not that old. It's not as old as Jesus or Al-Islam. It is not as old as James. It is a 
of it happened further down the lane where somebody from Greek to uh, Latin, whoever was doing the Septuagint work, they started putting these kind of concepts in. I do not know because there is no record for it. We are missing out on some records. Maybe we can go as far as Mark, I'm saying, who was the secretary uh, or the the writer. Uh, but that's not written by Mark. And we do not know when because we can go as far as, I think, 5th AD. We can go as far as, but we do not know whether Jesus at that time, especially at the time when Jesus was with us uh, in this planet, there was some sort of a record that everybody has kept. We, we look at historians, and that's the problem. That's why a lot of Muslims even start using the fact that we don't even know whether Jesus existed. I mean, they don't even know the Quran. Remember that Imran Khan said, Jesus is the figure of history. That's coming from this sort of a gap that Christian literature actually suffers from. So this also points towards the fact that even the Christians don't talk about their own books because it's written in the text. There is so much, you know, uh, contradicting within their own 20s yeah, books. Yeah, no, no, they admit it. They don't. We don't have uh, first-hand witnesses of Jesus' crucifixion. We do not have that. We do not have first-hand witnesses of uh, uh, his resurrection. We do not have any of the testimonies of the people who were there. We have people who were testifying that Matthew wrote it, but we do not have Matthew saying, I saw it. So there is no first-hand witnesses of any of this. That's a big problem for Christians to solve. It turns out that not reading uh, your own religious scriptures is not a problem. Well, no, no, they're reading, Muslims actually. They're reading more. Muslims are suffering from the exact same phenomena that Christians are suffering right now. They don't go through the scholarship to the Prophet. Muslims don't do that as well. Yeah. We don't try even, even, we don't even break a sweat coming into the challenge of, you know, all of this culture of whatever piles and piles of books is just sitting on our heads. And those are, none of these books are from the Prophet or the Zabi. It was like, we're, you know, sunk into this, believing in this little quagmire of, you know, divinity now, that you know what Sisi Bnikasin wrote, that's the final word. Sorry, it's not the final word. The final word and the first word is the Quran. First and final word. Now, you can... You can challenge anybody and every every scholar, whoever wrote the tafsir. You have to challenge it as far as I'm concerned. But people are not going to do that. And thank God we're speaking English here. And it's like, otherwise, you know what? This, even this would have been a bone of contention as to why even think about this. Yeah, exactly. Why even think about this? So, uh, coming back to, you know, the religious scriptures, Jews are also actually uh, battling with similar kind of issue yet, they are able, mm -hmm. you know, withhold their uh, actual religious identity. No, no. Stand. Even if 45% of Jews are liberals, yet they are able to, you know, uh, uh, no. their own identity intact. Well, no, they're not. The liberals, uh, okay, this is how the Jew the map looks like. But you have the liberals on the left hand, and and then there's the, the, the you know, the classic Orthodox Jews. And then the classic Orthodox Jews do not disown the liberals because, you know, they are Jewish. But Jewish liberals have nothing to do with the Torah. Okay? Because they're influenced by somebody else. So the two types of Jewish philosophies, what is the rabbinic and what is the Babylonic? Babylonian and rabbinic. 
Now, the Talmud is not written by both. You need to understand that. So I'm not going to go into detail as to what the Jew uh, map looks like, but a regular Jew has to choose between any of these. So you'll find out that uh, the oral commentary, which is what I'm talking about here, which is what Christianity is filled up with, they, uh, the these people, they challenge the Torah, and Torah has been the most challenged book by the Jews. Classical Jews have challenged Torah blatantly. Muslims have never done that. You know, we call it the Salaf Salahin's way. You know, saying Torah is not the word of God, nor the word of Moses, nor the word of prophets. That's an oral com commentary of the sages. They're the orders, the six orders of, you know, let's just call it their opinions. So, that's a bottleneck between them, a Jew, and going to Torah. But Jews came up with this methodology called the Peshat. Now, that's some gift that they gave to the regular Jew. Peshat in Hebrew literally means the flattest meaning of the word. So, they cling on to the Torah way more, of course, than the Talmud. And if it does not say in the flattest, most simplest meaning of the, the verse, whatever Torah is saying, then they divorce Torah. It, the, the, Torah can, the Talmud can have multiple meanings of the same verse of Torah, but it has to have the simplest meaning with it. So let's just put the same instrument on the Quran. When we open the Quran, when I say that in Surah Kahf, Allah uses the word Sadafayn. We use, we are not using that methodology of Peshat. Okay? We use the translation of mountain. Okay? Then Sadda, that's a mountain. Sadafayn, mountain. Sudain, mountain. So why is it not saying Sudain upstairs? Why is it saying Sudafain? Well, that's mountain. So you're divorcing the simplest meaning of the word and you're incorporating such a weird meaning which does not really fit, but it has to have an abstract flavor of it. So Sadaf actually has a meaning in Arabic and mountain is not one of them. Sadaf. Okay. You need to see what's the problem here. So Jews saved themselves and jumped into the Torah Muslims jumped out of the Quran by putting the sages in between them, uh, the Quran and, you know, the people. So I'm not just talking about uh, when you go to Surah Taqweev. Surah Taqweev cannot possibly carry the meaning which it is written in Urdu. Surah Talaq. Literally op opposite meaning written in the translation in most of the translations. Well, not most, but so many. Those that I've read. You don't even translate that word, which is mislahunna. Mislahunna is a plural for something which is represented as earth. Inside that ayah, with the numerical value of the seven heavens, which means seven earths. But you're not going to find that here in any of the translations, especially in Pakistan. So... I would rather, you know, commend the Jews for coming up with it. You know what? You cannot divorce the most simple and flat meaning of the verse. Even if you have to come up with a hundred versions of the, of the, you know, translation. 
Well, that's what we did. We did really good. That's why I, if you ask me, I'm personally against translating the Quran. We should not be translating the Quran. We should be teaching Arabic. Because if you're going to start that, this go down this rabbit hole, then you're going to find a lot of people who are going to be, you know, even, even if they don't want to be Paul, they'll be doing a better job than Paul himself for Christianity. And then we are becoming Waladalin. We are the Waladalin because we've divorced the, the latest meaning of the Quran and we've come up with weirdest translations and we don't even ponder upon why did this guy come up with this meaning. That's why I recommend Fakhruddin Razi. At least he tried. At least he's tried. Of course, I'm not going to say, you know, he's the last word for it. What's the point of saying anything then? So, the religious scholarship of, let's say, subcontinent or otherwise, uh, the Islamic scholarship, to hide their own lack of knowledge, what they try to do is they try to fix the text. You know, the, they try to translate the text in a way that they can understand with their limited knowledge instead well, of, you know, literally translating the text and then exploring what it actually means. Well, inductive and deductive, yeah. But I'm not going to take away the benefit of the doubt from the scholarship just like that. But yeah, well, the net result was a, an accumulative minus. So yeah, well, they should have taken a bigger responsibility for this. And I think uh, the way tafsir is such a viral concept in the religious people, tafsir, that's a big failure on Muslims' part. Why is tafsir the most viral book? Why not the Quran? The Quran is never a viral book because we don't understand the Quran. Well, then, tafsir is the worst way of going into the Quran. Arabi was the best way. You want to go to the Quran? You put two years of Arabi, you're going to know Arabi, maybe three or four. You're going to go ten years of Darsta Nazami and, you know, Tafasir and Muhaddas degrees. Why don't you just start with the finest possible problem? Teach a kid Arabi from day one and then make him go into the Quran by design. We know with a bigger aperture. Well, then that's going to open another rabbit hole of, you know, why our apertures are too small. Coming back to Talmud, that the way you know Jews are actually treating this, the shots, yeah. yeah, their youth, that their youth is you know bound to their youth actually believes that there is going to be a third temple. And there's a video as well of yours in which you were talking about uh, Palestine and how actually Jews are training their youth. Yet we are actually failing on that uh, accord, and we are failing on that front. Uh, yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? That what Muslims can actually do to train our youth. Uh, in, in terms of, you know, whatever is happening in the global arena, whatever is happening in Palestine and Israel, and uh, the way postmodernism is actually... Okay, well, let's just talk about uh, various this geopsychology uh, routing, uh, well, constructed. How are they constructing, and how, who did that? We know that, okay? We, we know that a lot of uh, Jews went through a lot of trouble. So they had to come up with some sort of a reaction. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, Torah is devout of uh, Third Temple and whatever. No, well, it's not. But it recently is not an order for to build a Third Temple. It's a prophecy. It's not an order. You need to understand that. So, once we know that, you know, Moses didn't build a temple. He was against building temples. You know, that's the, the, the we broke the tabernacle. So somebody came up with this. No, okay, let's just say, oh, you cannot say that as a Muslim. Suleiman al-Salaam built that. You know what? Well, he built that. He didn't order everybody to start building temples. So it's a prophecy of the, the, the third temple that they're carrying that, you know, it's the house of the Messiah. 
Well, okay, yeah, okay, so it's the house of the Messiah. We are also waiting for the Messiah. You need to understand that. As Muslims, we should be building them a third temple. You need to see what, where I'm, what angle I'm trying to give the Muslims. That if they're waiting for their Messiah and we are waiting for our Messiah, then we don't have a problem. You know, they're going to have their Messiah, we're going to have our Messiah. And uh, their Messiah is going to have love and blessings to every as a rabbi. We all know that. But there's a problem in the way they have perceived this whole, you know, the political side of it. And that's where Muslims are suffering from because they, we don't know, we don't see the political side of their Messiah. The first thing Messiah has to do, which I believe Isa ibn Marim is going to do once he's going to come in because we have the hadith for it. And they have the right prophecy for him. Whatever they want the Messiah to do is what Isa ibn Marim is going to do once he's going to come. And that's what I keep telling people who are, you know, the second coming deniers in Muslims. They're... I mean, how could you not reconcile that Christians are already the book of Revelation? Even the Torah is filled up with that. Isaiah is filled with that. Jeremiah is filled with that. Zechariah is filled with that. Even Genesis is filled with that. Of what this whole Messiah tenure is going to start with, feel like, and that. And we know that, you know, this is what Isaac the Mariam is going to do. So, we should know why is that a problem? All of a sudden, that's a takeover plan. First day, system change. Well, it's not just our system that they're going to adopt. They're going to impose a system and we will be literally giving bayah to their systems, their system. Can, can, you, not, can you not just do the math on how big of a problem that is? That they're waiting up on a big Armageddon against all the rest of the philosophies and it's going to happen like this. You know what I'm saying? So, think through this, Muslims. I, I beg of you, think through this. Because if we are also waiting for a Messiah, which we are, I am, and he's going to come in and he's going to, you know, invade everybody and call himself, you know, the, the only true message which is only going to be left on earth, then I would be rejoicing with the fact that, you know, well, you know what, it's good, it's a win-win for everybody. But we are going to go under the worst possible turmoil. We're going to go through mass killing. We're going to go through, you know, anything that we're, uh, Islam represents will be massacred. And this guy is going to start claiming God, and even in the Christian Bible, and a prophet in the Jewish Bible. So, we, we need to know when a child is harbored to this psychology, especially in uh, uh, Tel Aviv, in the streets of, you know, Brooklyn and America. He cannot possibly adhere to Islam. As soon as you're going to come up with, you know, the complete picture of Islam, he'll be like, oh, you know what, I can believe in all of what your book says, except when you start this Jesus theory, man. Because then you and I, I mean, I'm going to kill you. And I am literally going to, you know, it's going to be a mitzvah if I kill you. Because that's exactly what my Messiah is going to do. He's going to, you know, he's going to massacre you guys. I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, our Messiah is going to be only killing your Messiah, nobody else. But your Messiah is going to kill everybody else. I mean, see the difference between the two Messiahs and their approach. 
So uh, I'm just worried that religiously we're not trained into the psychology of Jews and we do not know how to interpret it as a basic implementation of the political framework that I would be assuming, forget, for just, let me just give you the analogy so you understand. If we had a prophecy, which we do at some level of Ghazwai Hind, that in Pakistan, there will be a guy who's going to come and take over the world. Can you do the math on how superior we would have been? Imagine, the whole world will be saved by a Pakistani. A guy is going to be from the lineage of the Pakistani, and he's going to look like a Pakistani. He's going to come from, let's just say, Muldan and travel northwards. If this sort of collection of Ahadis was with us, you and I would have been two different people. You know saying? We would have been putting the Arabs down. We would have been waiting for that guy. We would have been looking at our sons for that kind of a sign. That's what the Jew psychology is. That's why they look down upon all Gentile. If our book said, you know what, Gentile is not equal to a Jew, for if you could kill a Gentile, you know what, that could be mitzvah. Then that's a totally different psychology. Their Messiah is going to bulldoze everybody. And that's why I'm against the 13 principles of Israel, because they pivot the Messiah in, and that's going to be a rampage.